This is recording number 10916 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, April 10, 2011. This is the sixth message in the series titled, The Doctor's Gospel, by Randy Bolt. This message is titled, Jesus vs. Religion. Religion is vastly different than what I read about the life and ministry of my Savior in this book. And today, as we open up Luke chapter 5, we're going to be looking at the differences, some of the differences, Jesus versus religion. Now, you know, or at least I hope you know, that we are involved in a a fairly lengthy study. We're making our way through the Gospel of Luke, uh, written by a physician. And so, as a physician, he had a very orderly, uh, methodical, uh, detailed way of going about these things. And since I tend to be kind of that way, I love reading Luke's stuff. And so, I'm dragging you along with me on this journey through Uh, Luke's gospel that we're calling the doctor's gospel for the reasons I've just mentioned. But, uh, you know, and like I said, like I've said before, maybe it's just me, but when I think about Luke the physician, and I know that medicine, I'm not an idiot, I know that medicine in those days was not as scientific as it is these days, but it still drew the same kind of person to the role Uh, Someone who was motivated to help others. Someone who was detail-oriented. Someone who was wanting to make sure that nothing, no little details got missed. That nothing got overlooked. It it drew that kind of person who Luke uh, clearly was. And someone who was willing to submit themselves to a high degree of education. And we have uh, some medical students in our congregation today. They know exactly what I'm talking about back there. And um, so, but I can't help but think of of Luke uh, with the stethoscope around his neck. And that, I just, I don't know. Uh, There's no verse in the Bible that tells me this is uh, the case. But it just seems to me that page after page, what we're seeing in this book is Luke listening for the heart of Jesus. And we get to be in on that search. And uh, so we get to... Experience some of that this morning, beginning at verse 12 of chapter 5. Follow along with me as I read, would you? And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus. Now that term, full of leprosy, I'm told, was a a medical term. It was a diagnostic phrase. It wasn't that he just had leprosy, but he, he really had leprosy. He was full of leprosy. And it's interesting for me, as we will read a couple of accounts of healing in this uh, passage of Scripture we're going to read today, to think that a doctor, a physician, is writing these. Not, not just somebody who, could have, who was gullible and just willing to accept any old thing as fact. This is somebody who you know investigated these claims very thoroughly. 
So here's this man, and we've, remember, we've just come, it was two weeks ago that we were last in this book together, and you will remember that where we left off was Jesus in the beginning stages of calling his disciples, and he met Peter and uh, uh, Andrew and uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners in a fishing business, and uh, the dramatic call of them to become his followers. And verse 11 says that they forsook all, And they began to follow him and become fishers of men rather than just fishermen. What follows now, though, is some really important stuff about how Jesus was reorienting people's perspective about God and this confrontation between Jesus and religion. So he comes across this man who's full of leprosy. Leprosy, I think uh, most of us don't really have um, firsthand information about because we don't know anybody with leprosy. It's, it has been uh, so um, well addressed by the medical community, but it still exists in other parts of the world. And it was an extremely, or it is, I should say, an extremely disfiguring, um, cor- uh, corroding, debilitating, isolating disease, incurable disease. Now, now, let me just say that there were various forms. There are various forms of things called leprosy that have really other diagnoses. But, you know, regardless, the man is seriously ill. And as a leper, isolated from everybody else, he can't be with people because they were considered to be extremely contagious. So they had to live in isolation. In fact, they had to announce themselves. If anybody came near, they had to announce to the world, leper, stay away. I'm a leper. Stay away. Can you imagine living your life unable to be with people? To look, I'm not sure what kind of, uh, I'm not sure they had the same kind of lighted mirror that my wife has sitting on our bathroom counter in those days. But whenever they would see their reflection, they would have to face the fact that they are, they're literally falling apart. Their, Their body is decaying before their eyes. This man, he comes and he falls on his face. He's breaking every rule. But he's so desperate, he falls on his face and he implored, or that word means begged Jesus saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And isn't that the question that a lot of us ask from time to time? Maybe not out loud, maybe not with those words, but we have a serious need to. And we know that if there is a God in heaven, surely he could do something about this. But what we're not sure about is if he's willing. Am I right? Listen to Jesus. Then he put out his hand and touched him. Can you imagine? It was literally breaking the law, the Mosaic law. Now, before I I, I leave you with the idea that Jesus went around violating the word of God, let me say that as he was breaking the Mosaic law, in the very same motion, he was also healing the man. So uh, perhaps it's not quite the same, but the, the act of touching the untouchable, Jesus reached to him, touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. 
immediately. The leprosy left him and he and Jesus charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests. Here's the first entry of religion into the story. But go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. And the reason that he's saying this is because that in the Mosaic Law, in the uh, Old Testament, in the first you know, five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, it... it uh, Moses gave under the direction of, of the Holy Spirit but Mo- Moses gave um, instructions about what you should do if you were a leper and received healing and part of it was you would go show yourself to the priest because they're the ones the priests by the way were the ones who would were call, uh, called to do the diagnosis in the beginning if you started seeing you know patches of you know white or flaky skin on your on your on your body, you were supposed to present yourself to the priests, and they would look you over, and they, they had certain guidelines uh, that they had to follow uh, to either clear you or pronounce you as being a leper. And then on the flip side, if you were healed, there are clear instructions in Moses, uh, the books of Moses, about particularly Leviticus, about how you're supposed to go to the priest and say, "Hey, look, dude, I'm healed." And then there was some offerings that you gave, in, in, in uh, as a, you know, an expression of gratitude and thanks. And so Jesus says, "Look, don't go around spreading the word about me." Of course, every time Jesus says that, that never works. But he says, don't go, look, this is not, I'm, I'm, this is about you and me and my love for you. I'm not doing this for show. I don't want you to go on tour now <laughs> so, to, to promote me. Just keep this quiet. This is just between you and me. I love you. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the priest because this is the role that the religion plays. They get to... Diagnose. They, they get to identify. They get to observe. So go to the priest and let them see what I've done. However, the report, verse 15 says, However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. I could spend two days on verse 16. But uh, I'm not going to. What I am going to do is ask you to consider with me uh, those first uh, verses 12 through 15 for just a minute. In this first encounter, in this passage of Jesus confronting. Jesus confronting religion. And this, we're going to talk about four, four types of things that Jesus confronts. That, and, and, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about religion's role in those things. And the first of them has to do with brokenness. Brokenness. Religion is powerless to deal with brokenness. And so you're going to find that wherever religion, and by the way, let me define it for you. Religion is human attempt to, to create systems by which people can be, please God. Religion, you'll find, is always moving away, distancing itself from brokenness. Because once religion identifies, oh, you're messed up. I, I, 
God bless you, and we move on. Because religion really doesn't have any power to deal with brokenness. Now, if you somehow figure out how to get yourself straightened out and you show back up, then I can identify that and say, hey, well, welcome back. But religion is powerless to deal with brokenness. Let me give you an example that may not be so, uh, so nice to hear, but it is something, there is some truth in it. Six months ago, uh, I guess a little more than that now, we moved to this location here in Cordelia away from a community or a neighborhood in, in Vallejo that had seen better days. Uh, I mean, we had during services, we had cars broken into in the parking lot, brazen daylight right out front of the door, uh, robberies. We had, thank God, we have a Vallejo PD officer in our church who was called into duty more than once. Um, And there was all kinds of stuff that would show up in our services in the form of people with serious brokenness and problems that, frankly, were overwhelming to us. Now, it's not the reason we moved. We tried to stay there as hard as we could. And this is the door the Lord opened up, and we believe it is the Lord's will, and we're grateful to be here. Amen? Amen. But I got to say, I have to admit that there are times I'm sitting there in my office thinking, I am so grateful. (laughs) Because the brokenness that surrounded us there was overwhelming. It was more than we could handle, more than we could deal with. And I'm not, I think you understand what I'm saying. There is something about the human, human need and the overwhelming human need. Sin's effect and brokenness on people that overwhelms human ability to deal with it. And you're going to find that religion is always distancing itself from brokenness, whereas Jesus is always moving towards it. I am willing. Wherever you may have experienced a measure of brokenness, that is good news, dear one. And we, as a congregation of people who are trying to orient our lives to be more like Jesus, we need to keep that in mind. Let's be a congregation. Let's be individuals who in the name of Jesus, even though we may not have the power, even though we may not have the answers, in the power and authority and anointing of Jesus Christ, find ourselves moving towards need. And then over the next six months between uh, you know, June and November, there will be eight people from our congregation, you'll meet them next week, uh, going to very difficult parts of the world to step in, they're going to, they're spending tons of money and tons of time and effort to prepare themselves to march into brokenness. I love that. I love that. Let's, let's be that kind of people. 
Then verses 17 through 26, we covered it quite extensively a few weeks ago, actually before we started this study of Luke, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it, but it's the story of Jesus teaching in a house that was full of people, and uh, nobody could get in, and there were four friends that had a buddy that was paralyzed, and they wanted desperately to get their friend to Jesus so he could be healed. They couldn't make it in the door, so they tore the roof apart and lowered him down in front of Jesus, and Jesus forgave him the sins. <laughs> now that's a wonderful thing, and, and, but that's not what the guys were after. They wanted him to be healed. Well, thank God Jesus did heal him too. The man who was paralyzed walked out of there that day. But look, the real thing that happened, the, the, the explosive event that took place in that scene was Jesus forgiving a man his sins. And that's the thing that religion got really upset about. So the next thing that I want to talk to you about that Jesus confronts with regard to religion is guilt. See, religion has to keep a measure of guilt on you so that it can manipulate you, so that it can have it, so that that's what it uses to operate. You can never get, under a religious system, you can never get completely guilt-free because then there's no hooks on you anymore. We can't motivate you. We can't make you show up for church. We can't get you to give money. We always have to have just a little bit or hold out the, hold out the promise of forgiveness but never really give it because we need to have that lever. Jesus waded into that, confronting religion, and he said, man, and he wasn't even asking for it. His friends who lowered him down from the roof, they weren't even asking for it. And Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Not just some of them, not just yesterdays, not just today's, your sins are are forgiven you. And I've spent many, uh, many, uh, literally hours in front of you proclaiming this good news. And so you know what I believe about that. But in case you are someone who has either because of the religious systems that you have made your way through or for whatever reason, have been a, unable to imagine yourself outside of your sin? The Bible tells us that God has separated your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. When God looks at you, your sin is not in the same frame because of Jesus' covering. And when you, when you receive that gift of God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness, full and complete. He doesn't need to keep you in line by pulling the strings of guilt. The love of God is so lavish. That is the motivation. That's the reason I pursue him. That's the reason I want to give of my life and my resources. That's why I sing to him and worship him. That's why I read the Bible. That's why I pray. Because of the love he's lavished on me. Not the guilt that I have.
Then it says that Jesus met a guy named Matthew who was a tax collector, beginning at verse 27. Matthew was in his little toll booth. How many of you ever crossed a bridge around here? You know what a toll booth is. And he's sitting in his little toll booth by the side of the road, a place where people had to stop and pay their taxes. And uh, he was a despised character because he was a tax collector. He was labeled something that was anathema to everybody. He was a tax collector. Jesus showed up, looked him in the eye. There's just a couple of verses here that, that talk about this. And verse 27 is, is, I mean, there's so much packed into it. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. Two words. Looks him in the eye, says to him, follow me. I assume he paid his taxes first. I don't know. (laughs) Follow me. Verse 28. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. The guy walked off the job never to return because of two words. Follow me. I could preach a week on that too. Everybody say thank you that you're not going to. Thank you that you're not going to. Okay. And then it goes on to say in verse 29 that Levi threw him a party. I mean, you get the impression that Matthew, and that was his, uh, he's the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. That's his other name. That Levi, Matthew, Knew how, to, knew how to party. <laughs> and that's probably all he knew how to do. And so he's just met Jesus, and the only thing he can think of, well, let's have a party. <laughs> and so he invites all of his sinning buddies, all of his other tax collectors, and, and, and that's, all, that's the only crowd he knows, and they come, and he wants them to meet Jesus too. Party evangelism. <laughs> that's not going to hold up with religion very well. Because religion needs to keep exclusivity. It needs to have a gate. It needs to be the gatekeeper. Some people are in. Some people are out. If you have the label tax collector, you're out. Right now, you can think of other labels, can't you, that are out. People you know because of some word associated with their lifestyle. They're out. As as far as religion is concerned, right? But Jesus opens the door. The the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, it tells us, they come and they complain to to, uh, Jesus' disciples. They don't come confront him directly. They confront his, his disciples at this party and they say, what are you guys doing here? How in the world can you hang out with tax collectors and seniors? Don't you know? These are tax collectors. They're out. And then Jesus overhears it and butts in and he gives the answer. In verse 31 he says, those who are well... And, and he's referring to them and what they think of themselves. They're inside. They're well. They're part of the insiders. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician. You don't need and you don't want what I have to offer. But those who are sick, that's another story. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. 
to repentance. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Then it's like, it's like these scribes and Pharisees, it's, it's like they're so dull-hearted. And I, I, look, there is a little Pharisee inside of every single one of us. You've heard me say that before. And he is just waiting for an opportunity to get let out. <laughs> and, and look, I am, I am no... I'm no saint in this. I find myself behaving religiously more often than I care to admit here today. So this is not, I'm not thumbing my nose at anybody or pointing fingers here, but religion makes you very dull-hearted. Jesus has just said something extremely profound and it's like they don't even hear it. And they go on in verse 33 to say, well, but you guys don't, you guys don't fast either. Like, what? <laughs> you don't fast like, well, even John's disciples fast. And you know, we all fast and we pray. And that means that they had, you know, very specific ways that they went about these things of fasting and praying. You guys don't do that. You're here with sinners partying. And Jesus said to them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? Notice the language, the friends of the bridegroom. He's talking about Matthew and his sinning buddies. He's talking about the disciples. They are friends of the bridegroom. And when the bridegroom is present with the friends, you don't, they, how unnatural, unbelievable would it be for them to fast? Or to engage in some sort of prayer that is ceremonial and ritualistic. The bridegroom is here. And these are my friends. We behave that way. And then in verse 36, he tells a parable that we'll come back to you about uh, new garments and new wineskins. But beginning at verse 1 of chapter 6, he, is, he and his disciples are traveling along the road. It's, uh, they haven't had anything to eat and they grab some grain from a guy's field and they rub it between their hands to kind of do a little threshing of the wheat, get the grain, uh, you know, the nutritious grain away from all the other stuff and they eat it. And this was perfectly acceptable. In the Mosaic Law, it said that you, if you're traveling through a friend's field and you're hungry, you can do that. It doesn't mean you take your sickle and start harvesting his crop for him and, you know, or take it away or steal from him, but you were welcome to make sure that you had enough to eat as you're traveling through. That was in the Mosaic Law. There was nothing wrong with what they were doing except for it was on the Sabbath day. <laughs> so, of course, the scribes and Pharisees jump all over that. And they say, uh, or they get really upset about the fact that he's doing this on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, have you not read this? And then he tells them a story about David and something that David did that was just incomplete. It seemed to be in complete violation of everything religious. And he says, look, this is kind of along that line. I'm confronting religion here. And he says, the son of man, referring to himself in verse 5, 
is also Lord of the Sabbath. In another place, Jesus had said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But you see, religion always wants to re reduce how we relate to God to ritual. Always. We always want to reduce how we relate to God to a set of external do's and don'ts, a, a, a code. That way it's measurable. <laughs> I can check. Okay, I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. I'm good. How many of you relate to your wife or your husband that way or your child? Let's see. I gave her a birthday card. I told her I loved her yesterday. I... I'm good. <laughs> you know how, how that would go over in my house? Not well. <laughs> because the bridegroom is present. We're friends. We relate to each other, to each other in that way. Not as a list of rules that I follow and check off. I can do the rules without ever relating to him. You realize that? You can fulfill all the requirements of religion and never know God. Amen. That's a scary thought. And then, verse 6 of chapter 6, he uh, is in a synagogue teaching and there's a man there with a withered hand. And it says that the scribes and Pharisees are just watching. It's the Sabbath day, right? That's why they're at the synagogue. And they're watching to see if Jesus will heal the man on the Sabbath because, aha, he'll break the Sabbath. But he knew their thoughts, verse 8 says. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. And then there's this moment of silence, right? Because they're watching. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? What's he going to do? Is he going to break the religion? I mean, the ritual? Is he going to break our tradition? Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy It was quiet there, just like it is right here, right now. And when he looked around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out his hand, and it was restored as whole as the other. <clears throat> that brings us back to the wineskins and new garments. Verse 36 no one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. I, I've tried to keep a pair of jeans going longer than it should. Maybe you have too. Slapped a patch or two on there. It never works out. You know that? I mean, it, it, it might, and there, there, I don't think anymore. Now you just want to have the whole showing, right? <laughs> but there was a time when it was sort of a badge of honor to have patches on your jeans. I know that's hard to believe, but listen, I already told you I'm around sick and base heading for third, so I, I've been around a while, and I know what this 
it, it's it still, it, you know, it never, you maybe scored a point or two because you had the patch, but then, you know, what Jesus describes here always happened. First of all, it doesn't match. It, it looks ugly. That's what he said. If you take something new and put it on an old garment, it doesn't look right. It doesn't match. But then it says, because the new fabric has not yet shrunk, it's going to, when you wash those jeans, it's going to pull away from the already shrunken fabric and going to tear again. So it doesn't ever work. Verse 37, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. A wineskin was, as you might imagine, the skin of an animal, uh, usually a goat or something, that uh, was used to, to, as a container for the wine. You put the wine in there. And because the, uh, the, when the wine skin is new, it matches the fermentation process of the wine so that they expand together. Right? But if you pour... Uh, unfermented wine into a skin that has already been stretched out, is already old and not pliable any longer, as that new wine ferments and expands and goes through that process, it's going to burst the wine skin. He said, you don't do that. You put new wine in new wine skins. Then verse 39, he says, and no one having drunk old wine, this is tongue in cheek, This is directly at the religious guys. No one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. The old is better. Now, I I don't drink wine, so I don't have firsthand experience with this, but I'm told that there's a value to a wine aging. But not when it comes to the things of God. Because the Bible says that his mercies are new every morning, that God is always in the process of doing new things because he's relating to us. We are in relation. He wants a relationship with us. And relationships grow, don't they? Relationships move along a path of development. They're expanding. They're developing. And if you try to cram that into an old wine skin, all you're going to do is have a mess. Now, I think you get the point of what I'm trying to say these things this morning, but it really comes down to this. So you can set your things aside if you would and just kind of look my way for one more moment and then we'll pray and go home. I don't think there's anybody here in the room that's going to think of themselves as being in the camp of the religionists today. As I was preaching, none of you were thinking, oh, yeah, boy, I really like those scribes and Pharisees. We're all saying, yes, we're rooting for the, the Jesus movement. We're all saying, yes, I want that, right? And yet, I wonder how many of us are trying to take a little bit of Jesus, a little patch of Jesus, and just put it on a hole. Just try to patch something that's messed up or broken in our lives. It ain't going to work. It's not going to work. I know people who, you know, they, they, kinda, they like where things are at. You know, the old wine is better. I like my life except, you know, my relationship with my wife is messed up. Can I get a little Jesus to patch that, please?
or you, you, you get a diagnosis of some disease that is incurable or whatever, that'll often turn people towards God. Can I, uh, can I get a little patch for this? You lose your job and you have some financial struggle. It's a wonder how, it's, I mean, it's amazing how that'll jumpstart your prayer life. But your prayer life is all, almost always, God, could you patch this? Could you give me a job? And dear ones, it's the bridegroom saying, hey, I want to be friends. I want to be friends. Let's know each other. Let's walk together. The job, the physical condition, the marriage, state of the marriage, all of that stuff is important, but not nearly as important as my relationship with you. And as, as we walk together, you watch what I can do. 